Hi and welcome, this is episode 39 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. This evening I'm joined by Len Weins here. How's it, Len? Hey, good evening, everybody. And Kenneth Kalmer. Hello, everyone. And this evening we are talking Android, Google, and to open this topic up, we've invited Rebecca Franks to come join us. How's it, Rebecca? Hey, how's it going? Oh, good, good. So, Rebecca, for some background, could you give an introduction for the listeners? Okay, um, so I'm basically, I'm a senior Android developer currently working at DVT, which is Dynamic Visual Technologies, and I'm based at DSTV, where I work on their, um, their mobile apps, specifically their Android ones. Um, yeah, so uh, I studied at, at UJ, got my honors in computer science, and I've been doing Android Dev for about five years and about three years professionally. Um, yeah, so that's a little bit of technical background about myself. Yes, you know, I feel old when like you've been doing mobile development for five years already. That's kind of nuts. Huh? It, yeah. it seems like phones just came out last week. <laughs> then don't give away your age here. Yeah, it's 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 published on the internet, man. Everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I mean the Android ecosystem has actually been going for quite a while. Doesn't seem yeah. like that long, but it it has. So that's pretty cool. And you you have pretty much been there since the beginning. Uh, yeah. So I mean, um, I started tinkering around with it. Uh, got my first Android phone. And my sister actually said to me, you know, you can write an app for that. And I was like, what? That's not true. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I started Googling about it, figured out how to set up a whole, I think it was uh, Eclipse at the time. Now we all Android Studio all the way. Um, yeah, so I got set up and then I made a, a little Android app. And from then on, it was, it was passion. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. So what was that first app that you made? Um, the first that I made or yeah, the, the humble beginnings, where did that start? Um, yeah. So the first one I think was just basically a small hello world Android app. Uh, yeah, but my first program that I ever wrote in varsity, uh, that was, that was a little different story. <laughs> yeah. So basically I, I hadn't done development until I got to varsity. So it was a little bit of a shell shock for me. Oh, well, wow. so if you you just started doing uh, dev when you got to varsity, you went straight into computer science. Um, and how did you find that getting into computer science and getting into programming at varsity level? Um, it was actually really tough. So <laughs> I started out the I remember very clearly my first practical. We got told um, copy this code and fix the errors of the compilation. And I sat there for about two hours and I just couldn't do it. I thought, this is not for me. Like, I went home, almost cried a couple of times. <laughs> um, yeah, and then I just kept soldiering through it. And actually, it, it got a little bit easier, so at least. And now I enjoy it, which is quite strange. Did you learn about mobile apps at Varsity already or standing afterwards? Um, so I started tinkering with them in, in Varsity. We didn't do too much in terms of like Android and any specific platform. Um, yeah, so I just made I made an app in Varsity, a, a little Scrabble game, which was a lot of fun, but I wouldn't use that code in production today. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> you don't want that. Um, yeah, but they, 
But I think that's where it all started for me. Don't worry, I think we all go through a phase of looking at code we wrote a year ago and thinking, how the heck did that actually work? <laughs> Doesn't it usually start off with you going, oh my God, who wrote this rubbish? <laughs> Followed by a git blame command. Yeah, and then it's like, oh my God, that was me. <laughs> and then a, yeah, a, a humble receding from the computer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell between the legs. <laughs> that still happens today, so... <laughs> To all of us, to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, th I think it's just in general that's called programming, you know. Yeah, I think they say if you can't uh, if you can't see anything wrong with the code you wrote a year ago, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, you should probably stop, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. So, so you wrote Scrabble on Android, right? Um, yes, I did. I actually <laughs> tried to I tried to resurrect it. Um, but then yeah. I, I looked at the code and I, I just lost all hope for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't actually, I thought about, you know, IP laws and probably not yeah. calling it Scrabble isn't a good idea. So, yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're apparently quite litigious, those guys. Yeah. Um, so was, was it a single player version or like a multiplayer version? Um, it was actually a, a multiplayer version, but um, on the same device. Yeah, sing, so, single, single device, yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, so you so you wrote this thing. You were kind of embarrassed by it, and then like, what what led you to to actually doing this as a, as a career, as a job? Um, I think it was the whole fact that you could actually have this cool thing in your hands, and you could tell people, "Check out my app. Uh, this is what I made." And it's a lot more. I don't know. It feels a lot more real because it's in your hands versus making a website or something like that. It's a little bit further away from a user if that makes sense uh yeah so i think the ability to quickly get results like that and a lot of it's also consumer driven so so if you had like a an app on the store it's much easier to find than if you had just a website without any sort of way of it being found or recognized so i think it is a lot easier for users to get get hold of your app and actually use it yeah yeah even with all those Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of apps, if it's not even a million. I mean, how many apps are in the App Store or the Play Store? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a couple of million. I'm not too sure on the stats of that. Um, yeah, I think as long as you, I think the trick to that kind of thing is keeping your app updated. So like even if you search for some, some names of apps straight out, you won't really get the same results even if your app is directly called that. So you've got to, I mean, the Google engine's got a little bit of logic behind which apps to show first. So generally updated ones and ones that have a little bit more users will obviously show at the top. Yeah, but just in terms of finding apps, and there's, there are less apps than there are websites, right? By some, some huge order of magnitude. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, that might change, if not already. But that's the whole thing with app stores is that it drives foot traffic towards a place where people can quite easily find apps. And if you're putting stuff on there, if, if you're putting decent stuff on, then you've put some, you know, some thoughts into the description. You've um, done some polish and you've got a nice icon, something that uh, catches people's eyes. You're quite likely to pick up some traffic of people downloading and installing your app, right? Yeah, I mean, there's also options like you can run different experiments. Uh, so recently on the Play Store, they've introduced 
these experiment options where you can decide, okay, for half of my users, I want to show them this icon and the other half show them this icon. And then you can also compare which ones are getting more traction, which ones are doing better, which ones users are more likely to click on. So, I mean, they are uh, pushing for you to obviously get more downloads. So there are the tools available for that. Well, so that's directly in the App Store. You can sort of A-B test in the App Store. Yeah, uh, it's an awesome feature. You can also A-B test like the description, screenshots, all that kind mm. of stuff. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And then you can get all the stats coming out of that as well to see how many downloads or how many views you're getting out of that. Is that, uh, is that very similar to what AdWords would, uh, not AdWords, uh, Analytics would give you Google Analytics? Yeah, you can see exactly how many people actually installed from that. And you can also, if you have a paid version or if you have in-app purchases, you can also track if the users actually purchase from that um, that screen or if they terminated or which screen did better. Wow, okay, that's pretty cool. I had no idea that that even existed. Yeah. You live in the Apple universe, man. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very different, I guess. And I, and I think there's a big petition. I don't know, Rebecca, if you know much about the differences between the, the Apple App Store and the Google App Store. Um, I think there are quite a few differences. I mean, one of the notices that we've found um, is the ability, Google Play has the ability to do staged rollouts. So you can only um, push your update to a certain percentage of users. So um, typically what we do at work is we have a new version and we're a little bit like skeptical, is this going to be okay in production? So you yeah. push it out to about 10% of users and then you can immediately see, okay, wait, this one's not doing too well. And then you can pull it out and halt the rollout. And you can do it obviously up to like 10, 20, 50% of users. And then you can do your full stage rollout. Whereas something like iOS doesn't have that at the moment. So they have to go like full full rollout or nothing, which isn't so cool, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a huge uh, bone of contention in the iOS world. And tell me, can you do upgrade purchases and that kind of stuff in the Google Play Store? So, so I, I, I buy your app, and it's great, I like it, but a year later you put in a whole lot of effort and you make version 2 of the app. Um, is that just like an, I just get version 2, or is there a way to sort of charge me an upgrade price versus someone who hasn't got the app and they have to pay the full price to get it? Uh, that's an interesting question. I'm actually not sure. I've never tried that use case. Mm. Um, we don't actually have merchants accounts in in South Africa yet. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't have any paid for apps on the store. But I would assume you could you could integrate with Google Pay inside the app and then um, only make features available for the users that have actually purchased that bundle or whatever you want to identify it as. Right. Right. Okay, there's a huge fight in the Apple world about upgrade pricing and so forth. So what the guys are doing is kind of releasing like a completely new version. But then there's a problem because you, what you'd like to do is sort of acknowledge the support of the version one users, give them a cheaper way to upgrade. That's kind of tricky. Yeah, what I've seen they do often is um, have, say, the first week at a reduced price and then go back to the full price, but that's still not ideal. Yeah, you know, there are a lot of hacks and uh, also in the iOS world where they're bundling stuff together. But yeah, another subject, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that sounds like an interesting topic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think we're, as a as, uh, whole ecosystem, mobile ecosystem, we're trying to work out a lot of the specifics around how this is all going to work and 
kind of what's different really from you know good old box software to to the mobile stuff right yeah i mean there's a lot of contention with a lot of these different kinds of things i mean especially with purchasing so if you purchase an app and then the developer decides to unpublish it i mean in google's case they actually when you unpublish your app it's never actually removed from the store because of this use case where you would pay for it and then it might be gone mm. so i think there's a, a lot of regulations and that that still need to be ironed out with, in terms of mobile purchases and um, downloading stuff that you've bought already yeah exactly and, and what role does the store play in that like sort of policing that versus what control you have as the author yeah i think that's a a big thing for google and that's why a lot of their policies come into play mm. where you, you, you they're a little bit ridiculous for the developer but then you actually think about it from a user point of view and you realize oh okay it actually makes sense why i can't unpublish my app fully right and and can you do things like refunds? How do is does the Google Play Store support refunds? Um, yeah, so you get fifteen minutes after you've purchased your app to get a refund immediately. And that's that's handled in the App Store directly. Yeah, that's in the App Store directly. In terms of um, in-app purchases, I don't think there is a refund process. Like uh, at least one that I've seen. Um, I'm sure you could probably like send an email and try to get support to give you money back, but I'm not sure. Okay, cool. All right, so then you you built Scrabble and you you went off and you're you're working as a, a full time Android developer. And on the side, are you publishing your own like personal apps in the App Store, or are you just doing it on behalf of companies? Um, yeah, so I have my my own app on the store. It's a little bit of a pet project of mine. Um, it's called BookDash. So uh, basically there's this nonprofit organization based in Cape Town that um, creates free to distribute and translate uh, kids' books. So they're normally uniquely South African or African. And I saw the, the site, I got a little bit interested, and I thought, okay, let's make a, a cool app for them. Mm. So we've got a little app on the Google Play Store. And the nice part about it is that it's all open source. So anyone can download it and learn from it. And um, yeah, there's an iOS app on the way. I'm not diving it. We've got some other uh, volunteers from uh, to help out with the iOS app. Um, so yeah, that's one of my cool projects that I'm working on. I hope more people download it. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. Well, we'll definitely, um, you must give us a link to it and we'll put it in the show notes. Oh, so everybody listening, go get, what's it called? BookDash. Yeah, BookDash. Well, that's super cool. So perhaps can we dig into a little bit more technical stuff in the Android stack in terms of the app now? Um, so you mentioned Android Studio earlier and you mentioned Eclipse being the precursor to it. Uh, but what is really involved in getting an Android application app? Uh, what, what's your typical tool set when you're building an Android app? So I think the first thing you obviously need is Android Studio, and then you need the, the Android SDK, which will come bundled with Studio. With Studio. And then you can download um, different emulator images. So that'll be emulating your phone versions. So uh, Marshmallow, Lollipop, those kind of things. And then you can just download and install Android Studio, and you should be able to just create a blank app that you can then start coding in. So 
yeah, there's not very many tools that you need for basic Android development. So pretty much everything is rolled together in this Android studio. So I can go onto the Android developer site, download this. Uh, I'm on a Mac. I can just uh, drag the drag it out of a damage file and start and start working on an Android app. Is that pretty much the the setup process for me? Yep, pretty much. You might need to install a couple of extra tools like um, through the SDK downloader once you've got Android Studio open. So something like uh, the different API levels, the Android support repository, and obviously if you want different emulator images, you can download those. But yeah, it pretty much is all bundled with Android Studio now. So you mentioned the emulator images. Now, emulators would be really useful in dev because uh, I can imagine um, copying a, a a compiled binary or something, a, a compiled artifact, let's just call it that, to a device every time may be a bit time consuming. But uh, do I need to have uh, an up-to-date Android device to get, or to get to a point of being able to publish an app? No, I don't think you do. I mean, the, the emulators, at least uh, they've updated them quite recently and they're very powerful now. So they're not as slow as what they used to be. So um, they pretty much do a good job of what exactly your app would look like or how it would behave. I mean, obviously it is beneficial for you to have it running on your own device, but you, know, you can get away with just using emulators. And those emulators, are those just for different versions of Android or are those for different devices themselves? Uh, you can configure device screen sizes. You can configure if it has a camera and you can give it all different kinds of specs. So obviously you get your base API versions and then you can configure on top of that what you want the emulator to look like. So they don't give exact like this is a Galaxy S7 or whatever the, the specs are, but you can build up the, the emulator to mimic those specs. If I remember right, you can even control like the number of cores in the CPU and the memory. So if you want to test a low spec device versus a S7. Yeah, you can do that too. Related to that, though, I came across something on um, Browser Stack while I was doing some web, uh, just some web testing, um, and they've got the option there that you can open up a, a Chrome browser on different devices where they've actually got physical devices hooked up, uh, so you can open it up on a Galaxy S6 or on a um, HTC or whichever device you want to look at, uh, which is pretty useful when you trying to figure some or debug something that's only on a specific device at least that that's specifically in the web space uh, but if I wanted to do physical device testing let's say I'm let's say I've got a galaxy s6 uh, and I find out that there's a bug that's only happening on a Nexus 5 uh, is there any real way for me to go in and try and debug that um, yeah so you can you can obviously create an emulator with those specs of a S or a Nexus 5 or whatever you want. There's also another tool uh, called Jenny Motion that has these custom predefined skins on there. So you do download like a, a, a Nexus 5 running Android 4.1 or something like that. And they have a lot of um, a lot of devices configured there that you can download. And those emulators are also pretty good. Those Jenny Motion emulators are almost way faster than the standard ones. Do you know what the black magic is that allows them to be so nice and snappy? Um, yeah, so I think they were running as separate like VMs using 
uh, VirtualBox, whereas the Android emulators weren't. So in the new version, you should actually download the latest emulators and try them out because you'll be suitably impressed. They're a lot, a lot faster, almost as good as the, probably better than the, the Journey Motion ones. Um, but yeah, they, the, the Android emulators now are way faster than what they used to be because they also use uh, KVM emulation or whatever that is that speeds it up a lot. Yeah, the KVM virtualization. I, I think the old ones used, at least when I did it two plus years ago, was uh, QMU. So it was full on emulation. It was horrendously slow. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I just came across something looking around um, that Google's got this uh, cloud test lab. Or if we go to developers.google.com, where it looks like they've got physical devices sitting in their data centers that you can run your apps on. Uh, yeah, so I've actually tried it out. It's quite a cool service. Um, you need to, you can either just upload your your app directly onto it, and it'll then do what they call a monkey runner instance. So it literally just goes and clicks randomly on your app and tries to break it basically. And then we'll give you screenshots if it did fail or something like that. And then you can also run uh, normal automated tests on um, on the Google Cloud test lab. So that is um, actually you've planned out and saying, okay, click on the login button with this username and password. And, and then it also gives you like screenshots of how the test went and video recordings of what exactly the, the screen was doing, which is pretty cool. That's cool. So you could hook this into something like a CI that will just run through your app's tests on, on every build. Yep. You could do that. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I suppose it's a lot like, uh, with Travis CI there, where you can run, run your app against say Ruby, Ruby two, three, uh, J Ruby, Rubinius and all the other permutations of it and it's the same kind of idea of let's go and test it out on a galaxy on a nexus on whatever else yeah it is a it is a good thing to do especially with all the different api versions in android but you bring up a good point with the ci um, and testing kevi uh rebecca say how do you test these apps other than i mean i'm sure there's like some like unit tests or integration tests like i mean okay that's out the way and there's manually clicking around, but I mean, if it's a big, serious app, how do you know it's actually doing what it's supposed to do? I think this this topic has been yeah, a long time coming because previously a lot of the, the documentation around testing your UI was very limited and if you actually try to get it up and running, it was quite difficult to, to get it up and running. And uh, more recently, the introduction of the Espresso tool suits or whatever they call it, is like it gives you a set of um, basic view matching and stuff like that that is a lot more reliable. And they've got a lot of code labs online about how to uh, get your app done in a sort of test-driven way, if you would call it that. Um, so, yeah, Espresso is probably my medium of choice for UI testing. Um, and that you just typically set up in your app. I mean, you can also set up, uh, quite nicely your build or your app to point to different things like if you have a production and a staging environment you can get different builds like that and then you can also point your build to like a mock environment and then obviously you can get more reliable tests so you can have um, a test that depends on mock type data that you sending from a fake web server or something like that 
And then obviously you can cover a little bit more than what you would if you were hitting normal production database servers or staging databases. Okay, that's good to hear. It's just, oh, it's a scary thought. If I'm just thinking how people test huge apps like a Foursquare or Facebook even, you know, swarm stuff. It just grows and grows and grows and grows. So it's pretty cool to hear that that story is solidifying. Yeah, I think there's a lot more going on in terms of that. I mean, there's also a, a easier ways to start doing unit tests as well. So um, they're trying to push the idea of um, testing as much without any Android dependencies as possible and just normal um, Java code. So that's also pretty cool. Uh, I mean, obviously, you do need the, the UI tests to assert that your views are visible and that kind of thing. I mean, I have seen some pretty cool, pretty cool things and tools that you can use. I think one was from um, the Facebook talk that they did, where they have a, a, a set of tests that run that actually sit and compare screenshots from previous test executions. So they literally picked up a, a bug where the the rounded corners of their cards had changed by like a pixel. So I think they have pretty crazy tests running over there. <laughs> Yeah, that's that whole thing of Goldmaster testing where you um, capture the expected output and then make sure that after you make a change that it still gives you the expected output. Um, just a, one thing you mentioned, though, is uh, testing without Android dependencies and getting towards just pure Java. Uh, so would you just be using a typical JUnit type setup to do your unit testing there? Yeah, you would. And uh, you can so use... So, so all of the normal Java tools still apply here. It's not that it's something that something Delvic specific. No, it, it all runs just on the JVM. So you can just use normal Marquito, whatever you want. And obviously, then you you can mark out some of the Android things that you would typically hit. But I mean, generally, um, you can only like you can restrict just your view to be sort of Android code. I mean, obviously, there's exceptions where you might not have that. Um, but then you can. You, you then just make your, your JUnit test go from everything from the view down, obviously not including the view. And then it, it does make it a lot easier to test. And testing battery usage? I just had to throw that out to curveball because you had this great blog post a while ago, just before DevConf, about understanding battery usage in apps. And I think that's something we don't tend to think about at all. Yeah, I think everyone just bashes away and is really chuffed when they make something cool and doesn't really look at how is it actually affecting a user's battery. I'm, I'm not, I haven't really dived into automated testing of um, battery stats. I mean, obviously that would require like a long running test or like a yeah a test over a in couple the lab. of hours. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of time would be spent. Um, yeah, but I mean, there are tools to to inspect that manually, so you can see, okay, my battery's running down really, really low. What's actually what's actually being used? What what processes are waking up the device every few minutes? I mean, I actually found one of my apps was using my GPS for like an hour, and I wasn't even in the app. So yeah, I mean, there's quite interesting stats that you'll find if you pull those things from the device. And is it easy from that to then like zoom into your own app to figure out what's actually going on to kind of profile or I'm grasping at straws. Like if I'm busy diving something and I know I screwed up the animation loop or something's going crazy, or I'm holding onto the GPS asking for fine grain updates every few seconds, 
is it, is it an easy thing to spot or do you need to like get in there, get your hands dirty? Yeah, I think that's something that would take a while to to find. I mean, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't use the, the analyze battery stats one that might pinpoint that it's your app that's causing it. But then you would probably need to dive into actually tracing the code to see what's running often and what's actually holding on to the GPS and stuff like that. So it's a little bit, probably a little bit more complex. So I've got a question then around permissions in Android dev. Um, I, I know with uh, Android M now recently, they made a big change to how permissions work. And I think it's uh, now actually very similar to the way iOS works, where it asks you for permissions as you, or as the app tries to use a device, uh, a feature such as the GPS or tries to access your contacts now. Uh, how did that whole changeover happen and what's been the impact on the Android developer community and the feedback from the Android developer community to those changes? Yeah, uh, it's quite a it's quite a big change, actually. Um, so, I mean, if you have an app on the store that's not compiling with uh, SDK 23, so if you're compiling with a version prior to Marshmallow, uh, the App Store still prompts a Marshmallow user at the beginning of uh, when they click download, it prompts them for all the same permissions that they were requesting before. And then um, you will then have access in your app to all those permissions. And if the user goes to like the app settings screen and tries to disable a setting, they are able to. Um, the system does warn them to say, hey, look, this app wasn't compiled for this, so you might have weird results. So um, now if you want to support that permission, the new permissions model, you need to obviously compile with SDK 23 and then it assumes by default that you don't have any permission to anything. So you can just install the app without, without it granting you any, asking you for any permissions. And then in your code, wherever you access something that's um, considered like critical, then you need to start prompting the user to say, Hey, um, we're going to look at your contacts. Is this okay? And that kind of thing. So, uh, the one issue that I have found with that is that um, once you've upgraded your app to compile with uh, SCK23, you can't downgrade it without the users getting an message. So um, if you publish a new version to the store that's like a downgrade of once you've already upgraded them, they'll actually have to uninstall your app and then reinstall for it to work. So you can't upgrade them to a lower version, if that makes sense. So once you have it on SCK23, you have to fully committed. Yeah, I just think that that whole flow of um, having having the permissions come up in context of what you're doing. So for example, something's trying to look up some look up an ATM branch nearby if it's a banking app. Uh, and that's when it pops up asking you for access to your GPS. Uh, it just makes a bit more sense to a user than just a, a random list of permissions that this app needs access to your GPS and your contacts and uh, sending SMSs, whatever else it may be, which is often quite a barrier to people installing apps. Yeah, it, it definitely is a, an improvement uh, for the user's perspective. I mean, I love being able to turn off permissions to accessing GPS and stuff like that. It just is a little bit of a headache for the developers. Yeah, because now what if the user says, no, they're not going to give me access to the GPS. Must I, uh, must I fall back to something else? Must I go back to the menu where they came from? Uh, I suppose it adds a few extra branches to your code that you wouldn't have had to think about when 
you knew that you would have access to the uh, to the resources. Yeah, it definitely does have some complexity. I just want to ask around that compiling your app with the SDK 23, uh, like how would your app then only be supported on Marshmallow? Or would it still be backwards compatible with some of the older versions? So when you uh, compile your app, you can set what it compiles with. So if it compiles with 23, it means it's compiling with the latest SDKs. But then you mm-hmm. then you also set your min SDK version, and that determines the 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 lowest version that it can be installed on. So you can then specify min version 11 and then up to, well, then it compiles with 23. So not up to 23, but compiles with 23. And, and does that check that the API calls you're making in the app must exist in version 11? Um, not sure I follow. Um, so you said it'll run on that old version, but I'm assuming there've been new APIs coming out like since version 11 till 23. Yeah, so when you're coding, I mean, there's a lot of IntelliJ or Android Studio warnings and hints to say this API is only available from 16 and up, and then you can automatically generate like uh, conditionals to say if uh, 21 and up, then run this, otherwise do something else or don't even run this at all. Okay, so actually in the code you detect what version you're running and then only call those APIs. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so it's runtime binding. It's not compile time binding. Yeah. But the IntelliJ integration there is nuts. It's so useful. It shows exactly what's going on. Or if you accidentally start hard coding stuff, it's not supported. Yeah. I mean, the, the autocompletes and just the uh, the general use of Android Studio is really amazing. Like if anybody's using Eclipse, they should stop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I once worked with a guy um, and, and he'd been doing Eclipse and then we introduced him to IntelliJ. After a while, I said, so how's IntelliJ going? He said, hmm, I like it more than my girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so I was like, okay, I'm point taken. You know. <laughs> so, yeah. That might be TMI, but... Uh, <laughs> no, but people really do love IntelliJ. It's, it's quite something to behold. Yeah. Well, then you use IntelliJ, don't you, Len? Yeah, it's, for Java projects, it's unbeatable. It really is unbeatable. It's an amazing tool. Yeah, I'd say, I mean, Android Studio is obviously just like a, a fork of it, um, but that you do get most of the Android features in IntelliJ. So, like, you, you will get earlier access if you have an Android Studio instance. So certain things like they introduced a material color picker before they did it in IntelliJ. So, I mean, you can use both. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, in IntelliJ, the things usually just ship as plugins, so... It's, I guess, when somebody at Brains gets around to bundling all the stuff together as a plugin, once they've finished their specific development for the, for that targeted platform, then you get it, yeah. Yep. So, also, it's around dev tooling. There are a lot of guys who want to write Android apps, but perhaps are not too afraid with Java. Um, now, with it, with it being based on the JVM or Delvic, any Java bytecode should be, or anything that compiles down to Java bytecode should be able to execute. So uh, I know that there were some guys trying to use uh, use Scala instead of Java for or in, as a programming language, and I think they had some reasonable success from what I last heard, but I haven't really been following that. How does that community picture look these days? 
so there's a, another language called Kotlin. I'm not sure if anyone has heard of it, but that's a, one developed by JetBrains. So the guys that actually make IntelliJ. So you can actually quite easily set up um, your app to just use Kotlin without too much effort. So it's literally just adding a plugin to your Gradle script and importing a dependency. And then you can just start coding in Kotlin, which is actually quite a nice language. I mean, it takes care of a lot of Java's pitfalls. Um, but I, yeah, the community hasn't really adopted it that, like the, there isn't that much traction towards it at the moment, but um, I'm pretty sure it will pick up quite a bit. I mean, there are a lot of uh, blog posts and articles that I've seen around it. So I think it will gain popularity. So is Kotlin um, intended as a completely new programming language or is it something that then uh, transposes back into Java, but like extend? Yeah, so you can use both side by side. So you can access Java code from within Kotlin and Kotlin code from within Java. So you don't have to do one or the other, which is quite nice. Kotlin's supposed to be a better Java, basically. Pretty much. I feel like Linus Torvald's talking about CVS here. <laughs> <laughs> and SVN, CVS done right. I don't know if you remember that talk. Uh, and you would be, be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, we do know the talk. But yeah, apart from the Kotlin stuff, I remember Toby Green showed me his Extendroid uh, library, which is also supposed to help with taking a lot of the boilerplate um, stuff out. So he built on top of that Extend language that you mentioned, Gary. I think it's just all he says in the README, it's a DSL for Android that is implemented using Extend. So I'll put a link for that in the show note as well. It looks really succinct that you type so much less to get a bunch of stuff done. Yeah, I did see he made something like that. I haven't actually used it. And I want to ask a kind of burning technical question. If somebody asks you between building one of these hybrid Cordova apps uh, versus a native app, what would your advice be to them? Um, I think I'd always say native, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> like... Cordova and PhoneGap and all of those, like you can get away with making a, a really average app with it and it will probably do what you want it to do. But I just, I don't think you'll get a really high quality app coming from those kind of, those kind of platforms. So, I mean, in stuff like you took looking at animations and just like general polish of your app, like getting it to conform really nicely to guidelines and stuff like that, it's quite difficult with those platforms. I mean, obviously, they might have their place, but you won't get a a, a really popular app using it. Again, it's like Microsoft Access versus Postgres, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I was more. I think I I kind of that's the answer I wanted. <laughs> uh, but I, no, it's just I think definitely there's a spot for these hybrid apps, but maybe more back office stuff or supporting a mobile, you know, sales team on the road kind of thing. I don't think like getting a, like a top 10 app in the app store, or something like really worth all people like, you know, paying 50 bucks for just to download. I personally don't believe that should be one of those hybrid apps. I just wanted a, another opinion. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but then down those same lines, I don't know. My understanding is stuff like um, React Native and Native Script, they play in a slightly different space where they this like part natively compiled and with very few web technologies. 
I don't know if you've seen people compare them against the native native apps because I haven't yet looked into it too much. Yeah, I haven't actually. I mean, I've seen um, the the actual the Google I/O website. It's actually quite an interesting case. So if you open that on your phone and um, it'll prompt you to say, "Would you like to make this a, a bookmark?" and then it adds an icon onto your little home screen. And if you click on that, it actually like the app looks surprisingly native. And it's obviously just a website. So doing something right that we're not. But um, yeah, I think I'm not sure what they're using. I actually need to look into it. But that site doesn't do a bad job of making itself look like an app. Yeah, but, but can I just check something, Kenneth? It isn't React Native actually compiling down to native code? It does for big sections of it. And it uses the JavaScript core stuff and iOS as opposed to the normal uh uh, rubbish secondary J stuff that the Cordova stuff has access to, but um, yeah, and it builds up native views at runtime as opposed to compile time. But there's still a lot that happens, you know, at runtime that doesn't otherwise get compiled. But there's definitely like iOS is execution target, Android's execution target, and it gets yeah, but, compiled but, but down. It's, it's running Objective C or Java, not JavaScript. It's using both. It still runs JavaScript for some of the functionality but very very little it's not like the core it's just i guess it's the scene between their ui languages um, and their interfaces to the hardware and then your little bits of code that you write in whatever language they have but they don't change your javascript to uh, objective c they just run it completely different and everything around your javascript gets compiled down to native code oh okay hmm i'll have to go and uh, understand that some more Oh, yeah, we need to get somebody who understands maybe React Native on the show. Speak up, folks. <laughs> yeah, I still think with these kind of things, you will still end up having um, some Android-specific code and some specific code in, in these apps. I mean, from what I've experienced, start off with like a, a Xamarin app, for instance, and then you realize, okay, I need to do this more specifically for Android. So now you start adding like conditionals. If Android, then do this. So I, I don't know. I'm I'm a little bit skeptical with these kind of frameworks. Yeah, chatting to uh, Dan Smith at Platform Forty Five, he was saying um, he worked on an uh, on an app that was built with Cordova, um, specifically to run on both Android and iOS, and reckons. But he has a well, he had a very negative view on Cordova after that. Um, in that, he reckons that it would be possible to write the iOS specific and the Android specific apps and less time than was spent trying to mangle the HTML and CSS and everything together. I just want to mention one other thing on the React Native side though, um, is, well, I, I saw a presentation. I haven't actually used React Native yet, but, uh, I saw a presentation where, uh, he pulls up some JSX where he's got, um, uh, some XML in line, you know, the JSX render function. Uh, in JavaScript with some JavaScript around it. Um, but that's just a component inside an app that had other Objective C and, um, uh, Objective C and Java code next to it. Yeah, we can unpack how that stuff works a bit later <laughs> for a different time. Let's put it back to Android. Yeah. But I, I, I think I agree. If you want to, at least for me, it makes sense. If you want a good native, experience with all the look and feel and all the normal stuff that just competes with other top apps on the platform you probably need to build it like the top apps on the platform that you're competing with 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a hard a hard thing to do. I think you will spend more time trying to make it perfect. If you do go uh, cross platform, you'll spend hours trying to perfect it, which probably wasted. Well, you're always trying to work around this intermediate layer anyway. And if there's some feature in that line platform you want to use that the intermediate layer doesn't have, you're going to kind of end up hacking it, like you were saying earlier, with all these conditionals. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not a nice task to have to do. So I've got another question around um, native code. And when I say native, I'm the Android NDK. Uh, so if you want to do something like signal processing, uh, something where you want to have most likely have code written in C or C++ that um, got full access to your CPU uh, rather than than Java. Uh, have you had much experience working with NDK and oh, in- interrupting with NDK? Uh, where does that fit into the whole picture? Um, so I have had like very basic experience with it. I wouldn't say I'm well versed in it. Um, it is, I mean, it obviously has its place for obviously like if you want to do a video player, something like that. Um, but actually writing it myself, I haven't, haven't dived into that yet. Now what's the NDK? Is that like native C libraries or C++ like libraries that you can link with? Yeah, it's the native development kit. So you can then just write some code in C++ or C that you want to. Okay, because I see the the Golang guys have you know you're able to write Golang stuff and co- deploy it to Android. That must be using the NDK then. Yeah, must be. I'm not sure. Yeah, the, as far as I know, that uses NDK, um, and I think the from the Rust side, uh, where they've got compiler support now for well, for ARM seven, ARM sixty four, uh, that also must run through the NDK. Oh, cool! Can you write Android apps in Rust? I think just because you can doesn't mean you should. It's a kind of... <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, like, I'm sure you can write an Android app in Rust or Go using NDK, but it's not going to be supported in the same kind of way as you would get a Java app, from what I've seen, at least. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, the NDK is, is quite tricky to work with. You've got to think of um, different, like, architectures, obviously, and then you've got to build your app for the two different ones and then obviously you get weird ways it's really difficult to debug and step through so i don't know i wouldn't advise going that route if you don't need to but obviously some applications do need to do that so basically if you're a c++ programmer don't try and write an android app in c++ just go and learn java pretty much yeah (laughs) yeah but if you need to be able to um do something like signal processing or building uh, video codecs whatever it may be uh, then NDK is your answer. Yeah, that's the answer. I want to pull us back out of the hardware and the software for a second. And I wanted to ask Rebecca about the Google developer expert accolade that you got. First female Google developer expert on the continent. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, uh, well done. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and tell us a little bit about what that means and the story, how you got there. Uh, okay, so what a Google Developer Expert is, is basically somebody who's recognized in the community for um, being uh, an expert in the area that they've uh, developed in. So it involves blog posts, YouTube videos, attending conferences, and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so 
I think it, it all sort of started around like last year around there where um, I was, I'd recently launched Book Dash. I'd also, I had a Lotto app that I'd, I'd written quite a while ago, um, which was quite a cool app and it was getting quite a lot of downloads, but uh, the API got shut down. So <laughs> unfortunately I'd, that app is no longer. Um, yeah, so I had a couple of apps and I was blogging a lot already. So with that Book Dash app, I was able to uh, use it as like a learning platform. So people, um, I'd write a blog post about something that I'd done recently in Book Dash. And then you can obviously see the code yourself and check out the, the GitHub repository. So I think that was one of the, the things that helped quite a lot was having that um, application. And yeah, just generally um, organizing meetups, whether it's internal ones at work or external ones, and just encouraging other people to come and speak at these meetups and get involved and share their experiences. So yeah, I mean, that's still what I'm doing now. So um, encouraging more people to do it and just helping out if I can with some people that would request it. Yeah, that is pretty cool. Did you set out for the GDE or did it just happen purely by accident? Um, so I, I was informed, uh, I, I had an interview with the guys from Google and we spoke about what the program is because I actually wasn't aware of what it was or what it meant. I mean, they, they had seen a couple of my apps and my blog posts and stuff like that. And then after speaking to them, I realized I actually want to, you know, get into this process. So from speaking to them to when I actually um, became, it was it was quite a long process. Um, so there's lots of interviews and um, they do evaluate you on a couple of, of, of on different criteria. So yeah, I mean it did it was in my mind as to what I wanted to do, um, but not from the the start. No, that's awesome. I don't, like I was the first time I ever heard about the program was when I heard you you got it. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't know about it. Is it just the Android stuff, or do you know if they've got it for some of the other stuff as well? Like if Kevin wants to get a, become a Kubernetes <laughs> developer expert, <laughs> is there an avenue he can go chase? Yeah, that's one thing I haven't been able to shut up about lately, is it? Yeah, I mean, you can. there's a couple of different options. So it's generally uh, Google Technologies, so Google Cloud Platform, um, Golang, I think even Angular, maybe. But there's a couple. I mean, you can also become an expert in uh, UI and UX. Even a product manager can become a, a Google developer expert. So there's there's different areas, and um, you can check them out on the website, all the different things and the, the process of becoming one. Well, so Kenny, you can go pick up Go, Len, you'll pick up Angular, and I'll pick up Kubernetes. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sounds exciting. Planned. Yeah, I'll find the link for the for the show notes so everybody can go check it out if they're curious. And you said you <clears throat> help with organizing meetups. Uh, what's the local community space like here for South African developers? Uh, so there's actually, I don't know if it's quite a bit. I mean, obviously, comparatively speaking to the overseas community, it's not that big. But I would say it's quite... Uh, quite a lot of options that you can go for. Um, so obviously, if you're in Cape Town, you can go look at uh, GDG Cape Town. So they've recently been running um, 
the Android study jams, which is basically a session where, or it was a couple of, of sessions where they um, actually sit down with a, a bunch of people and you bring your laptop and they show you from step one how to make an Android app. And then they also had um, at GDG Pretoria, so they had the similar thing and I was involved with um, reviewing the like sort of final projects that they did after three, I think it was three study jams of them actually meeting and learning how to do Android. And then they get a little certificate to say, you know, you passed like really basic Android training. So yeah, there's uh, GDG Cape Town, there's GDG Pretoria, and then in Joburg, there's uh, the Johannesburg Android user group that's on Meetup. And then there's also uh, GDG Johannesburg, which also runs uh, like app clinics and you can take your, your concept or your idea of your app and then they have a couple of people um, helping out and giving you ideas and um, ways in which you can solve the problem that you're trying to address. And does Google have local people that get involved here from time to time or bring guests out? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I think they're trying to get a little bit more traction within Africa. Uh, which is one of the reasons why I'm also as part of the developer expert group. So with the, the community, um, we can look at getting other Google developer experts coming into uh, into the country and doing little talks at all the all the different meetups. So people are very interested from overseas to come and chat. I mean, I don't know if they've official Google. They won't really be official Google employees, but they're very well versed in their preferred technology. So they come with a good CV, basically. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Is there anything else you guys think we should cover? Rebecca, anything from your side that's important that we might have skipped over? Um, no, not that I can think of. Any advice for burgeoning Android devs? Just look at the docs, read up, and I don't I think you shouldn't really give up if you get frustrated, which will happen quite often. Uh, it's quite a, a difficult thing to do Android development, um, especially when you get weird exceptions and you don't know what to do. Um, so I think definitely learning how to Google really well is one piece of advice that I can give. And yeah, I think I think there's a lot of a, a lot of room for cool apps in South Africa. I think we we haven't hit the the market yet with all our inventions so i think we should definitely go for it well kenny what picks have you got for us this week i'm actually pick dry uh, if i might africa burn uh, it's kind of a pre-pick by the time the show comes out i'll be running around the career desert uh we're going there so all my energy's been planning that other than you know outside of work so that would be mine okay well just don't, don't die of dehydration while you're down there <laughs> No, I won't. <laughs> okay. Len, have you got picks for us this week? Um, we've just been doing a lot of closure development at the moment. <clears throat> and I'm sure you can run closure stuff on Android, which is super cool. Um, but there's there's one very interesting project I've been looking at at the moment called Durable Q. I'll put the link in the show notes. Very nice on disk persistent task queue for closure. So if you guys want to have a look at that. Cool. Rebecca, uh, any picks you want to mention or any links you want to also add to this? I mean, we've had, you've given us quite a lot of stuff that we can add to the show notes, but uh, anything that's important, you think? Uh, yeah, I think having a look at or signing up for Android Weekly newsletter, 
So it's a really good newsletter that gives out information, obviously on a, I think it's about Sunday. Um, and it's like a weekly roundup of different blog posts and articles. And then, yeah, just my blog, which is today. Cool. Then picks from my side. Um, so last week, well, I suppose by this time, by the time this episode goes live, it'll be two weeks ago. Um, Driven Alliance ran that evening of mastery where uh, a couple of guys from Eighth Light in the UK came out to speak as well. Uh, but there were some good book recommendations that came out of that that I just want to echo. Uh, the one is Uncle Bob's Clean Code. Excellent book. And along with that, The Clean Coder. Um, a classic book there that was mentioned is Working Effectively with Legacy Code. That's by Michael Feathers. And then the refactoring book by Martin Fowler. Um, so yeah, three very important programming books. And uh, one thing that also came up at the Code Retreat recently was uh, the discussion that Michael Feathers gave at NDC a few years ago about the deep synergy between testability and good design. It's an excellent presentation. So we'll link to that in the show notes, show notes as well. Thanks, everyone. That's episode 39 of the ZA Dev Chat podcast. Please remember to check us out on iTunes, leave us any ratings. Um, you can find us at ZA Dev Chat on Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, wherever you get your social fix. And yeah, see you next week. Bye, everyone. Cheers.